Have you come across the picnic at Hanging Rock being read by Robert Neal? Have you come across the sequel to the picnic at Hanging Rock? Panic at Crawford Woods. Very few people know about Panic at Crawford Woods. In fact, it's no longer possible to get hold of the Panic at Crawford Woods. I, I'm very familiar with, with Panic at Crawford Woods because over the last few days I've been paying attention to it and the panic has been growing every day because the book, Wanderlust, A History of Walking, has been lost. Yes, I haven't been able to find it. And as each hour has each hour of each waking hour has gone past, I've said increasingly to myself, I wonder what on earth I'm going to do. Surely I didn't leave it out in the rain and get washed away. Surely nobody I didn't drop it in in town. Surely it's not under the bed. Surely it's not hidden in my office. I've been I've been panicking because I so love the book and I've embarked upon the job of reading it, sharing the content of the book and my and my um the effect the book is having on me on on my podcast. Well, I have great news this morning from this morning. I put my hand under the front passenger seat in my car and in there was a book and my heart uh, thumped as i pulled it out and there and i pulled it out with the back of the book facing me and i thought oh, lots of books have got black black covers uh, with with white writing on the back of them and a isbn number down in the right hand corner of the back page and i turned it over very quickly and there it was that that rust brown lusty color with the dark green green trees a woman in a long skirt and a long rose road going up into fog or so it seemed so the book is back in my possession i'm back in monbon wood with louis my dog and i'm going to read from continue reading from this from this book and here comes a car Quilta Grow oh it's a it's a car with um, writing and logo of Quilta who uh, which is the organization which is managing these these woods there we are panic over I am by the way catching up very slowly on Picnic at Hanging Rock being read by Robert Neal who lives on the western tip of Lake Ontario in Canada and who also has a place in Nova Scotia on the north west I think of the of Nova Scotia. Oh I such a feel such a relief. I you know it's like well I thought I can't carry on with the reading of the book without somehow communicating the reason why I have why there's been such a gap between 
the last end of ap end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four. I have no idea what's coming up in chapter four. I have no idea what century we'll be in in relation to chapter four. What what philosopher? What thinker? What we've had uh, philosophy. We've had Rousseau and Diogenes, and we've had Diderot. Uh, we've had a number of people. We've even had mention of George Orwell, who isn't, well, who's a political campaigner, really, as well as a phenomenal journalist and a brilliant writer of English. Um, but we've also had scientists, evolutionary biologists, so far. So I've no idea where it's going to go. But the great thing is that it's full of, and it's, for me, an education. I keep learning. Partly I keep learning you know, new new facts and new perspectives. Like it never crossed my mind to think about bipedalism. In fact, I didn't even know the word. And the idea that there would be a debate going on about which came first, the brain or the legs... In other words, standing on two feet or um, the, the growth in the size of the brain. Uh, that, that never crossed my mind. So as I look at blackberries growing here, and they'll grow into dark, sweet fruit. And I am being beset by flies for the first time here. I think this must be because a lot of rain fell last night. And as I walk along what people would call it, a stroll along this path that I'm so familiar with and watch Louis stroll along too. I wonder, is he going to start running? And am I going to walk any faster, which I doubt. But this is a little bit of an introduction now to what's going to come next, which will be chapter four of... Wanderlust by Rebecca Solnit, A History of Walking, the new edition, whatever that means, I haven't mentioned that before. And, uh, oh, hello, that was a man on a bicycle, and I almost walked into him. He was wearing a black t-shirt, plain black t-shirt and khaki trousers, khaki, khaki shorts, as he was cycle past me. Okay, let me just take a break before carrying on reading this book I consider to be magnificent. Welcome to more reading from Rebecca Solnit's book Wanderlust, A History of Walking. This is chapter four, which has a great title, The Uphill Road to Grace, S colon, some pilgrimages. Walking came from Africa from evolution and from necessity and it went everywhere usually looking for something I mean that's just in itself I feel like stopping and dwelling on that from evolution and necessity it went everywhere and it's so obvious to say walking went everywhere usually looking for something and there's the point it wasn't just a oh a fact of life that Humans walk on two legs. There was a purpose to it. Okay, let me carry on. The pilgrimage is one of the basic modes of walking. Walking in search of something intangible. And we were on 
pilgrimage. The red earth between the pinion and juniper trees. No, sorry, the red earth between the pinon and juniper trees. I didn't know what I don't know what the word pinon means. P-I-N-O-N. Okay, let no more interruptions. The red earth between the pinon and Jupiter trees, juniper trees, was covered with a shining mix of quartz, pebbles, chips of mica, and the cast-off skins of Cicadas, who had gone underground again for another 17 years. I think that's a uh, thing that only blooms every 17 years. It was a strange pavement to be walking on, both lavish and impoverished. Like much of New Mexico. We were walking to Chimayo, and it was Good Friday. I was the youngest of the six people setting out cross-country for Chimayo that day, and the only non-local. The group had coalesced a few days before, when various characters, myself included, asked Greg if he would mind company. Two of the others were members of Greg's cancer survivors group, a surveyor and a nurse, and my friend Miridel had brought her neighbour David, a carpenter. Although we were on our own route, or rather Greg's route, we had joined the great annual pilgrimage to the Sanctuario di Chimayo, and thus were walking as pilgrims. Pilgrimage is one of the fundamental structures a journey can take. The quest in search of something, if only one's own transformation, the journey towards a goal, and for pilgrimage, and for pilgrims, walking is work. For pilgrims, walking is work. Secular walking is often imagined as play, however competitive and rigorous that play, and uses gear and techniques to make the body more comfortable and more efficient. Pilgrims, on the other hand, often try to make their journey harder, recalling the origin of the world travel in travail, which also means work, suffering and the pangs of childbirth. Since the Middle Ages, some pilgrims have travelled barefoot, or with stones in their shoes, or fasting, or on special penitential garments, or in special penitential garments. Irish pilgrims at Croke Park still climb that stony mountain barefoot on the last Sunday of every July. And pilgrims in other places finish the journey on their knees. An early Everest mountaineer noted a still more arduous mode of pilgrimage in Tibet. These devout and simple people travel sometimes 2,000 miles from China and Mongolia and cover every inch of the way by measuring their length on the ground, wrote Captain John Noel. They prostrate, they prostrate themselves on their faces, making the soil, marking the soil with their fingers a little beyond their heads 
arise and bring their toes to the mark they have made and fall again, stretching full length on the ground, their arms extended, muttering an already million times repeated prayer. Oh my goodness. If that wasn't in a in a serious book, I wouldn't have believed it. I must look it up on Google. In Chimayo, a few pilgrims every year come carrying crosses from lightweight and relatively portable models to huge ones that must be dragged step by weary step inside the, the chapel. That is their destination. One such cross is preserved to the right of the altar and a small metal plaque by its carrier declares this cross is a symbol in thanking God for the safe return of my son Ronald E. Cabrera from combat duty in Vietnam I, Ralph A. Cabrera promised to make a pilgrimage which consisted of walking 150 miles from Grants, New Mexico to Chimayo This pilgrimage was finished on the 28th day of November, 1986. Cabrera's plaque and knobbly wooden crucifix, about six feet high, with a folkloric carved Christ attached to it, make it clear that a pilgrimage is work or rather labour in a spiritual economy in which effort and privation are rewarded. Nobody has ever quite articulated whether this economy is one in which benefits are incurred for labour expended, or the self is refined into something more worthy of such benefit. And nobody needs to. Pilgrimage is almost universally embedded in human culture as a literal means of spiritual journey and asceticism and physical exertion are almost universally understood as means of spiritual development. Let me pause there. I think of when it comes to aesthetic aesthetics People who punish themselves or people who deprive themselves of stuff. I think of Padre Pio, an Irish man who put some a piece of metal with spikes on it underneath his clothes. And when he died, this piece of metal with spikes on it was found embedded in his skin. That's a that's one picture of an aesthetic and the other image is one of people flaying themselves with with whips and the whips having metal pieces attached in them so that blood pours out of the back of the person who's quote my quote comes from somewhere in my background mortifying their flesh carrying on some pilgrimages 
such as that to Santiago de Compostela in northwest Spain are entirely on foot from beginning to end. The pilgrimage begins with the first step and the journey itself is the most important part. Others, such as the Islamic Hajj in, in Mecca or various denominations visit to Jerusalem, nowadays are as likely to begin with aeroplanes and the walking only begins upon arrival. Though West African Muslims may spend a lifetime or generation slowly walking towards Saudi Arabia and a whole culture of nomads has grown up whose eventual goal is, Me is Mecca. Chimayo is still a walking pilgrimage. Though most walkers have a driver who drop them off and will pick them up. It's a pilgrimage in an intensely automotive culture alongside the highway north from Santa Fe and then on the shoulder of the smaller road northwest to Chimayo. The roadside for the last several miles is studded with cars whose drivers are keeping track of family or friends and in town the air can be noxious with carbon monoxide from the traffic jam from Santa Fe onwards. It is also studded with signs to drive slowly and watch for pilgrims. I'm walking up a slight incline, nothing very much, just a slight incline. And in front of me on the left hand side is a, a piece of wood which shows a forward facing arrow and two, two shoes beside it. Greg's route began about 12 miles north of Santa Fe and cut across country to join up with the rest of the pilgrims only a few miles from Chimayo. We had arrived at eight in the morning at the land Greg and his wife Malin had, brought, had bought long ago. And for him the walk tied their land to the Holy Land north, some 16 or so miles. It made sense for the rest of us too. None of us were Catholics or even Christians. And walking cross country, let us be in that non-believer's paradise. Nature, before we arrived at this traditional of religious destinations, I kept having to remind myself it wasn't a hike or get over my desire to move at my own speed and make good time. As it turned out, it was slowness that would make this walk hard. When I come across the word non-believer written by Rebecca Solnit, it was news to me. I had no way of knowing until that point whether she was a religious person belonging to any particular um, set of beliefs or organization or not. And it's interesting for me, who took my mother to Lourdes in the southwest of France, a place of pilgrimage, albeit a place to which we flew from Ireland and got on a bus after we got off the plane and went to stay in a hotel and where our walking was confined 
to walking from the hotel down to what's called the domain and within the domain to walk to the grotto and occasionally walk around the domain in and out of churches and the huge underground cathedral and then to walk at night in the evening to a local bar and drink uh, beer and, and have good conversation a combination really of you would say kind of fun and uh, for some people hard work because they were up helping pilgrims people who were very ill, extremely ill in some cases. I went there happily on three, in fact maybe four occasions, but three times with my mother. And I went there as an unbeliever. And I recorded a whole amount of audio, which is up on audio boom. I mean, I'm going back now, maybe about four years ago, five years ago. A whole load of audio recorded at Lourdes with observations about the atmosphere, the way people behaved and the way in which I I felt my every walk was a prayer. That's what I used to say to my mother as an unbeliever. My very being is a celebration. My every walk a prayer. That's what Rebecca Solnit has um, my mother, by the way, was a very devout Roman Catholic of the uh, Vatican II uh, genre. Um, walking cross-country let us be in that non-believer's paradise, nature, before we arrived at this most traditional of religious destinations. I have to say nowhere did I admire the attentiveness of people to other people, generous attentiveness, that I have not just a few people, but consistently at Lourdes, where you just look around, and everywhere on every bench, and on every piece of shade, on every piece of fierce sun, where there are people being pushed across this, the domain, I'll call it, even on the procession, midnight procession, with candles where people sang. All of this was, to me, a wonderful uh, place of commitment, harmony, dedication, and, to use that much-abused word, love. Amazing what a little phrase from another person can set off. Now I'm having a sit-down. I've decided to rest for a minute or two, or a few minutes or two. Greg's route began about... Oh no, I read that. Like much of northern New Mexico, the town of Chimayo exudes a sense of ancientness that sets it apart from the rest of the forgetful United States. The Indians are here embedded... The Indians here embedded the landscape with stone buildings 
Potch, Potts herds and petro glyphs, petroglyphs. I don't know what that is. And Pueblo, Navajo, Navajo, I think it is, Navajo, and Hopi people have remained a very visible portion of the population. The Hispanic population is also large and old, and their ancestors established Santa Fe as the first European inhabited town in what would become the United States. Neither of these peoples has been forgotten or eradicated as they have in other parts of the country. Nobody imagines that this landscape was uninhabited wilderness before the Yankees came. And in fact, the Yankees who came tend to borrow and revel in the cultures. The Yankees, oh God, I'm making a hash of this today, but it's just the way it is. And in fact, the Yankees who come tend to borrow and revel in the cultures, becoming connoisseurs of adobe architecture and Indian silverwork, of Pueblo dances and Hispanic crafts and everyone's customs, including the pilgrimage. Before the conquistadors came, Chimayo, easy Louis, Chimayo had been inhabited by the ancestors of the contemporary Tewa Pueblo people, and they named the hill above the Santuario Tsimayo, the place of good flaking stone. Records of Spanish settlement in the Timayo, Chimayo Valley date back to 1714, and the plaza in the north end of this narrow, well-watered agricultural valley is said to be one of the best remaining examples of colonial architecture in the region. Like much of New Mexico, it is insular. One of its children, Don Usner, says in his history of the place that those of the plaza don't intermarry with people of the Potrero in the southern end of the valley. In colonial times, the Spanish settlers were forbidden to travel without permission, and an extremely local land-based identity evolved. In another northern New Mexico village I had lived in the year before this pilgrimage, someone once tartly remarked of a neighbour, They're not from here. We remember when their great-grandfather moved here. <laughs> that can happen in Ireland too. The Spanish spoken here is old-fashioned, and it is often noted that the culture derives from pre-enlightenment Spain. That reminds me, old-fashioned language reminds me of the of Canadian French, Quebecan. In its strong agricultural and local ties and traditions, it is widespread poverty. It's widespread poverty, its conservative social views and its devout magical Catholicism. This culture often seems like a last outpost of the Middle Ages. The Sanctuario is in the southern end of Chimayo, on its own little unpaved plaza, past a street of crumbling adobe houses and shops, with hand-lettered signs and chilly ristras. Graves fill the courtyard of this small, sturdy-built adobe church.
Inside it is covered in faded murals depicting the saints and Christ hung on a green cross in a style reminiscent of both Byzantine and Pennsylvania Dutch painting. The northern chapels are what make the, the church exceptional. Though, the first is full of pictures of Jesus, Mary and the saints brought in by devotees and hand-painted images mingle with 3D and decoupage icons. A silver glitter and hand-painted images mingle with 3D and decoupage icons. A silver glitter virgin of Guadeloupe and a printed varnished cracked Last Supper. The outer wall of this chapel is covered with crucifixes, in front of which hang a solid row of crutches, their silvery aluminum forming a surface as regular as prison bars through which many Christs peer. Through a low doorway to the west is the most important part of the church, a little chapel where the hole in the unpaved floor yields up the dirt pilgrims take home. This year it had in it a small green plastic scoop from a detergent carton with which to take up the moist, moistly crumbling sandy earth. People used to drink this earth dissolved in water and they still collect it to apply to diseased and injured areas and write to the Church of Miraculous Cures. The crutches here testify, as they do in many pilgrimage sites, to cures of lameness. When I first came here several years before, I had learned of many holy wells of water. But I was astonished to find a holy well of dirt. The Catholic Church doesn't generally consider dirt much as a medium for holiness, but the dirt well in Chimayo is exceptional. The anthropologists Victor and Edith Turner use the term baptizing the customs to describe how the Catholic Church assimilated local practices as it spread across Europe and the Americas, which is why, for example, so many of Ireland's holy wells were holy before they were Christian. It is now thought that the Tiwa considered the earth here sacred or at least of medicinal virtue before the Spanish came. And that in the smallpox plague of the 1780s, the Spanish women acquired some of their customs. To consider earth holy is to connect the lowest and most material to the most high and ethereal. To close the breach between matter and spirit. It subversively suggests that the whole world might potentially be holy and that the sacred can be underfoot rather than above. Oh my goodness, the sacred may be underfoot rather than above. Oh, there's something about that that thrills me. The sacred may be underfoot rather than above. Almost reminds me of the modern day equivalent, secular equivalent of cloud computing which may be 
in the corner of the room rather than above. On earlier visits, I was given to understand that the well was supposed to replenish itself magically, and such inexhaustibility has been the stuff of miracles since the bottomless drinking horns of Celtic literature and Jesus' own multiplying loaves and fishes. Certainly the hole in the dirt floor of the chapel is still only about the size of a bucket after nearly two centuries of devotees scooping out soil to take home. But the religious literature I bought next door made it clear that the priests add earth from elsewhere that has been blessed and on Good Friday a large box of such earth rests on the altar. The story goes that during Holy Week early in the 19th century a local landowner Don Bernardo Abeta was performing the customary penances of his religious society in the hills. He saw light shining from a hole in the ground and found in it a silver crucifix that, when brought to other churches, would be found again in the hole of Chimayo. After the crucifix returned to the hole three times, Don Bernardo understood that the miracle was tied to the site and he built a private chapel there in 1814 to 1816. The curative properties of the earth were already known in 1813. A pinch of it in the fire was said to abate storms. The miracle story fits the pattern of, for many, pilgrimage sites, notably the medieval cycle of the shepherds in which a cowherd shepherd or farmer discovers a holy image in the earth or some other humble place amid miraculous light or music or homage by the beasts an image that cannot be relocated for the the miracle and the place are one the Turner's rite of Christian pilgrimage all sites of pilgrimage have this in common They are believed to be places where miracles once happened, still happen, and may happen again. And the walk goes on. I could call this my pilgrimage to discover who I am within to discover what kind of a creature evolution has brought me to be and what kind of a creature society has manipulated into the shape it is and chiseled away those rough edges leaving even more to be chiselled away. Hello, fly on the page. Pilgrimage is premised on the idea that the sacred is not entirely immaterial, but that there is a geography of spiritual power. Pilgrimage walks a delicate line between the spiritual and the material in his emphasis on the story and its setting.
though the search is for spirituality. It is pursued in terms of the most material details of where the Buddha was born or where Christ died, where the relics are or the holy water flows. And here comes the man on the bicycle again. Louis, Louis, come here. Good dog. Sit, sit. Okay. Right, hold on a second. Or perhaps it reconciles, it being pilgrimage, reconciles the spiritual and the material. For to go on pilgrimage is to make the body and its actions express the desires and beliefs of the soul. Pilgrimage unites belief with action, thinking with doing, and it makes sense that this harmony is achieved when the sacred has material presence and location. Protestants, as well as the occasional Buddhists and Jew, have objected to pilgrimages as a kind of icon worship and asserted that the spiritual should be sought within as something wholly immaterial rather than out in the world. There is a symbiosis between journey and travel in Christian pilgrimage, as there is in mountaineering. To travel without arriving would be as incomplete as to arrive without having travelled. Let me say that again. To travel without arriving would be as incomplete as to arrive without having travelled. Hmm. To walk there is to earn it through laboriousness and through the transformation that comes during a journey. Pilgrimages make it possible to move physically through the exertions of one's body step by step towards those intangible spiritual goals that are otherwise so hard to grasp. We are eternally perplexed by how to move towards forgiveness or healing or truth. But we know how to walk from here to there, however arduous the journey. Two, we tend to imagine life as a journey, and going on, an actual expedition. Takes hold of that image, an actual expedition takes hold of that image and makes it concrete. It acts out with the body and the imagination in a world whose geography has become spiritualized. Oh, this book is crazy. This book says things, in, for to me, almost in every, certainly on every page, which, if I wasn't walking along this trail, would stop me in my tracks. We tend to imagine life as a journey, and going on, an actual expedition takes hold of that image and makes it concrete acts it out with the body and the imagination in a world whose geography has become spiritualized. The walker toiling along a road towards some distant place is one of the most compelling and universal images of what it means to be human, depicting the individual as small and solitary in a large world, radiant on the strength, reliant on the strength of body and will. In pilgrimage, the journey is radiant, with hope that arrival at the, in, at the tangible destination 
will bring spiritual benefits with it. The pilgrim has achieved a story of his or her own, and in this way too becomes part of the religion made up of stories of travel and transformation. Tolstoy captures this in a longing that comes to Princess Maria in War and Peace as she feeds the myriad Russian pilgrims that pass by our home. Often as she listened to the pilgrims' tales, she was so fired by their simple speech, natural to them, but to her but to her full of deep meaning, that several times she was on the point of abandoning everything and running away from home. In imagination, she already pictured herself dressed in coarse rags and with her wallet and staff walking along a dusty road. That's Tolstoy. She has imagined her life of genteel seclusion become clear, sparse and intense with a purpose. She can move forward and intense with a purpose she can move forward sorry and intense with a purpose she can move towards <laughs> and intense with a purpose she can move toward walking expresses both the simplicity and the purposefulness of the pilgrim as Nancy Fay writes of the long distance pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. When pilgrims begin to walk, several things usually begin to happen to their perceptions of the world, which continue over the course of the journey. They develop a changing sense of time, a heightening of the senses, and a new awareness of their bodies and the landscape. A young German man expressed it in this way, in the experience of walking, each step is a thought. You cannot escape yourself. You cannot escape yourself. In going on pilgrimage, one is left behind the complications of one's place in the world. Family, attachments, rank, duties, and become a walker among walkers for there is no aristocracy among pilgrims, save that of achievement and dedication. The Turners talk about pilgrimage as a liminal state, a state of being between one's past and future identities, and thus outside the established order, in a state of possibility. Liminality comes from the Latin limin, a threshold, and a pilgrim has both symbolically and physically stepped over such a line. Quote, Liminars are stripped of status and authority, removed from a social structure maintained and sanctioned by power and force, and leveled to a homogeneous social state through discipline and ordeal. Their secular powerlessness may be compensated for by a sacred power, however, the power of the weak, derived from, on the one hand, the resurgence of nature when structural power is removed, and on the other, from the reception of sacred knowledge.
much of what has been bound by social structure is liberated. Notably, the sense of comradeship and communion, or communitas. This is said by the Turners. Liminars are stripped of status and authority, removed from a social structure maintained and sanctioned by power and force, and leveled to a homogeneous social state through discipline and ordeal. Their secular powerlessness may be compensated for by a sacred power, however, the power of the weak, derived on the one hand from the resurgence of nature when structural power is removed, and on the other from the reception of sacred knowledge. The resurgence of nature and the reception of sacred knowledge. Much of what has been bound by social structure is liberated, notably the sense of comradeship and communion or communitas. A greater sense of comradeship and communion or communitas. I have family who have gone on the Camino. Well, it's better, I think, to say their Camino. We have walked some of the road into Santiago. I have sat at a cafe in Santiago de Compostela and watched people turn around the corner in the street and walk the last, I don't know, 400 metres, 300 metres maybe, to the huge, to the massive, cathedral in Santiago de Compostela. I won't read any more now. I'm close to the I'm close to the conclusion of the walk. This is chapter four. I had no idea we were going to talk pilgrimage or more accurately that we were going to dwell pilgrimage in pilgrimage. There is something arduous about walking and reading. There is a certain otherworldliness because I don't actually watch and see where I might stumble. There's always a risk of falling. There's always tension in my knees. There's always breathlessness. So in my puny experience, which is huge for me, and cannot reasonably be compared with the experience of somebody who walks on a recognized pilgrimage. You know, I start sentences on this pilgrimage that never finish. I think thoughts that never get to mouth. I have associations that will never come back. And in that sense, everything I experience right now is sacred to me.